Welcome to At the Bar, a spirited conversation uh, about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum, and I'm here with my colleague, Jennifer Braceris from Independent Women's Law Center. Hey, Inez. How are you? I'm good. Jennifer, how are you? Good. I'm excited to talk about this topic today. We're going to be... Um, just sort of going over the standoff between Texas authorities and federal authorities at the border. It's been in the news a lot lately. Um, and we're going to talk about the political aspects, the sort of media aspects, um, the substance of the, of the debate. And also we will consider whether states have a legal and constitutional right to take action to stop illegal immigration when the feds have failed to act. Um, the issue came to a head last month when the United States Supreme Court vacated a lower court's temporary injunction barring Border Patrol agents from cutting barbed wire installed by Texas along the Texas-Mexico border. So this case is super interesting because, um, and and the, the sort of litigation that will spring from this uh, whole situation is really interesting because, as most people know, uh, this is a situation in which the federal government is declining to enforce the law that is actually technically on the books written by Congress along our southern border and has declined to do so for a long time. Um, and so in 2021, uh, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, launched what he called Operation Lone Star, very Texas name. Um, but it's a state initiative to actually deploy the Texas National Guard um, to put a bunch of, of razor wire. This will become important um, along the border, critically not on the border, a little bit back from the border and largely on private property, which is an interesting wrinkle uh, in all of this. Um, so sometimes that wire needs to be cut either by Texas or by the Border Patrol um, for various reasons, including the thing that's going around on the leftist sort of media meme about this case, which is including to rescue people drowning uh, in the Rio Grande uh, in the attempt to cross illegally. But sometimes the Border Patrol and Texas, they disagree about when and where to cut it. Um, and so the, the Border Patrol overrides Texas uh, sometimes and cuts it where they want to cut it. Um, and and of course, this is like this this very iconic image of of the in some ways of the federal government going to the extent of actually cutting barriers um, and clearing barriers for illegal immigration uh, into the state of Texas against the will of the state of Texas. So, in October, Texas sues in federal court to try to stop the border patrol from taking down the wire that they have put up and arguing that the Border Patrol, the Biden administration, is trespassing uh, on private property, destroying uh, Texas's state property because the wire is the state property that's placed on private property. Um, and anyway, there's just like a whole tangle that came out from that. There is this, the, the, um, a, there's an injunction that goes up to the Supreme Court um, from the Fifth Circuit that stops the Biden administration uh, from cutting that wire, at least until the merits of who's in charge here uh, get worked out. That injunction is slapped down by the Supreme Court. Um, so now we're going to argue it out first in in uh, Texas and then um, and then ultimately probably on the national level in the Supreme Court as to who actually what powers does the state have to enforce its own border when the federal government uh, is failing or actively trying not to enforce federal immigration law. So um, all of that is a long, long story, long way to say um, we have some great guests for you today to talk about this issue. 
Yeah, we're joined um, today by Danielle Huntley Webb, um, who is an immigration lawyer in Massachusetts um, and a member of the Federal Society, also a board member of Mass Fiscal uh, Alliance. And we're also joined by one of our IW legal fellows, Jill Jacobson. So thanks for joining us, ladies. Happy to be here. Super happy to be here. Awesome. So, okay, as usual, um, the media seems completely flummoxed over what actually happened here at the court. Um, Jill, I know you've written a short blog piece dispelling some of the myths about that. Can you just bring us up to speed on on what the media is saying the court did and what the court actually did and how the case is making its way through the courts now? Yeah, definitely. So there are two big myths that are going around uh, in the media. The first is that Texas defied the Supreme Court or disregarded what they said. And the second is that there's an invasion that warrants Texas use of federal war powers to defend. So I'm assuming we'll talk about both of those uh, throughout the course of the show. But the first one, that Texas somehow defied the Supreme Court's ruling, is certainly uh, untrue. So as Inez briefly said, back in October, Texas sued the federal government for destruction of property uh, after federal Border Patrol agents destroyed that concertina wire that we just spoke about. Uh, and then later in December, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, so the appellate level court um, in that jurisdiction, jurisdiction sided with Texas, and they enjoined the federal government from taking down the wire. But it's important to note that an injunction is a temporary pause pending the final merits of a case. So it's putting a pause on the behavior until it can be fully litigated. It isn't uh, a final outcome in a legal sense, which is really crucial to the disposition here. Um, so then the federal government appealed that to the Supreme Court um, and the Supreme Court lifted the pause and they said, OK, while we wait for a final merits decision, while we wait to really hash this out in courts, yes, the federal courts, uh, I'm sorry, the federal border patrol agents, you are allowed to take down the wire uh, if someone's health and safety is at risk. Um, but they didn't give a reason why they didn't opine on the merits. They didn't say if Texas is allowed to do this or does isn't allowed to do this. All they said is, in the meantime, you may take down the wire. Uh, and then the media storm uh, took took that and ran with it in a way that really isn't, isn't accurate. One of the interesting things I think about the way the media has described this is, um, and also a lot of politicians, Democratic politicians, have said things like, um, Texas is in violation of a Supreme Court order, or Texas is behaving un in an unconstitutional manner after the Supreme Court said that the Biden administration could continue to do uh, what it's doing. But of course, the Supreme Court never told Texas it couldn't do anything. It just, it basically said, you guys do you, right? Texas, you want to put it up? Go for it. Feds, you want to take it down? Go for it. We're not getting involved. These issues need to be briefed and litigated. And when it comes up to us on the merits, then we'll take a look at it, right? But in the meantime, hash it out yourselves. Exactly. Yeah, this this really kind of reminds me that the, the sort of misinformation around uh, this or, or um, the 
sensationalizing of this case really reminds me of the apocryphal quote about Andrew Jackson allegedly defying right John Marshall in Worcester against Georgia all those years ago, where that he never said that. He never said uh, that the famous quote that a lot of people probably know: "John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it." Mm. That was that was from an opponent's newspaper. A description of what Jackson actually said, which was. There's nothing to, I mean, he, he said it in a different way, but there's nothing to enforce here because there was no actual action for Georgia anyway. Um, but it really reminds me of that debate and how yeah. that like, quote became emblematic of, of the executive branch defying uh, the Supreme Court when in fact it wasn't. And what we right. remember is the sensationalist headline from an opponent's newspaper. So I feel like that's right. very and, much and like that. No, nobody's defying the Supreme Court here, right? Everybody's yeah. just going about their business. Yeah. So there's nothing, um, just to be clear, like Danielle, is there anything in uh, the Supreme Court's rejection of this pause, as you say, um, that one, indicates how the rule on the merits necessarily, and and two, um, that that uh, Texas can, quote unquote, defy. Texas can just put keep putting up the razor wire, right? It's just that Biden is allowed to come down and cut it. Correct. I mean, that's that's my read on the situation. It's kind of like a almost a status quo. Like you can put up wire, but they can cut it or take it down. And there's nothing stopping you from continuing to put it up. I mean, I think I honestly don't know where they will come down on the merits. I think it's a very um, it's it's tricky because you do have a failure of the federal government to enforce immigration laws. But the, you know, that gets to our structural problem of Congress, do your job. So, you know, if we want to see any type of truly systemic changes to our asylum laws, to our laws about what happens when someone shows up at the border, whether at a port of entry or outside of a port of entry, um, like that Congress has to make those changes um, to even enforce, you know, so, so one of the things I like to hear, I hear a lot about is well, it's on the books that these people are required to be detained. And that's true, it is, but there is not, there. The, the facilities do not exist to contain the amount of people who come to our Southern border. And no one seems to be willing or able to figure out how to pay for that, to create that infrastructure. It's just, it's, it's I see this as kind of the like icing on the cake of Congress do your job. Um, and that this is just emblematic of how broken our system is. I mean, it's just, it's it's pure insanity. Um, so we'll get into, I think, a lot of those those issues about whether the states have the power to supplement and use their own resources in accordance with what are still the, the, the rules on the books, right? The laws on the books from Congress, um, which is a really key part of, I think, this case and the, and the, the thing that really might uh, potentially, or at least I hope, change about our our precedent on this. But um, as of now, just to dispel the rumors, you know, Texas can continue to putting put up their razor wire, and uh, I have a short clip showing that they're in fact continuing to do so. Texas and Governor Greg Abbott are making it no secret they're putting in more razor wire at the southern border just days after the U.S. Supreme Court gave the go-ahead to the federal government to remove the wire. In a lengthy statement, Governor Greg Abbott is reiterating arguments he cited before, asserting that the federal government has fallen short of its constitutional duties to protect the southern border. He's specifically citing U.S. Constitution Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which says in part, no state shall without the consent of Congress keep true 
troops in time of peace unless actually invaded. Governor Abbott has said the state is being invaded. The question is, would the courts agree? Yeah, so Jill, that's why where I want to bring you back in here because you were saying before that that's sort of also a misnomer uh, in the press, and perhaps you think Governor Abbott is wrong in his description. Um, maybe it's a legal tool he's using to be able to accomplish his objective, but um, my sense is that you don't think that he's actually right. So I don't know. Tell us, do you? Yeah, I think just to touch on the outcome of the Supreme Court case, um, you know, there's an avenue because of the posture of this case that the Supreme Court does not opine on immigration at all. Because of the posture of this case, I mean, the federal government is normally immune to tort suits. Uh, so they could throw it out on sovereign immunity and not give us any advice about the situation at the southern border at all. Uh, given the current current makeup of the court, I don't know if that would happen, but that so if, is if I'm not mistaken, let me just stop you there because and I confess I didn't read the district court opinion, but I believe from what I read, the media accounts of it that that the district court essentially said just that, right? That you, that they couldn't sue the federal government on this at all. Yeah, exactly. Generally, the federal government is immune from from tort suits, and this is a destruction of property suit. So, um, you know, the Supreme Court could disregard that and choose to answer some other questions. But I think most people would would predict it rules narrowly, at least it should, if, if possible, and it might just be thrown out uh, on immunity grounds and, and we won't have any guidance whatsoever until the next squabble. So it, it, just to, to consider the question of whether or not this is an invasion um, and whether or not this clause that the, the governor is invoking is the right clause to invoke, what, what do you make of that, Danielle, as an immigration attorney? I mean, I've always understood invasion in the Constitution as something that involves an act of war, an act of uh, a militia, an act of an, an armed force. I think what we have at the southern border is a humanitarian crisis um, of cartels trafficking people because we do not have a functioning immigration system. So is it an invasion in that there are a lot of people showing up at the southern border and um, overwhelming resources? and that bad actors are profiting off of this to the tune of billions of dollars. Yeah, but I don't think that, I, I think I, like what Jill said, I don't think that kind of fits into the definition of invasion as it's been historically understood in the constitution. But that doesn't minimize in, in my view, just kind of the absolute horror we're seeing at the Southern border. Um, I mean, it's, it's a really, really bad situation. What about the second argument? Let's move to the second argument that Governor Abbott actually puts forward, right? Because there, there's the invasion argument, which we've just talked about. Um, and I, I tend to agree with you that the, the definition of invasion, um, the colloquial definition of invasion, this might fall under. Um, yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people feel like they're being invaded. I yeah. feel like I'm being invaded because the migrants that are the hundreds of migrants who are hanging out in the park, you know, three, three blocks away from me. But um, I tend to agree with you, Jill, and, and with with Jill's uh, blog post and what Danielle just said, uh, that probably this is not like this is not an organized and armed invasion in the sense that I think the Constitution imagines it. But but Governor Abbott makes a second. Oh, wait, before, before you get to the second yeah. argument, I would just throw in that 
that some people have made the argument that invasion requires both entry and enmity, right? Like you're, you're, you're not just coming in, you're coming in to do harm to the United States or to, the, or to people in the United States or to the body politic of the United States. Um, and others have countered, yes, that's true, but it's still, it has to be, it has to be done by a state actor, right? And they have to kind of occupy territory for it to be an invasion. But at the same token, there are references in the Federalist Papers by Madison um, to pirates and barbarians as invaders, right? Those aren't state actors. They're not um, taking territory. They are bad actors, as Danielle said, like some of the cartels who, you know, are, are, were at the time, you know, coming to the U.S. to do bad things. And if pirates and barbarians are invaders, not every person crossing the border is an invader, but certainly there are invaders that one could argue, I guess this is I, I definitely think you can you can make the argument that a certain subset of the people entering the United States illegally at the southern border are bad actors. I mean, I think there was some type of uh, a news report that it was some number. I think it was like 100 people were on the terrorist no the, the um, terrorist watch list were then apprehended by Border Patrol at the southern border. So I, I, I think, again, the problem is that we don't know who's crossing the border. And that's why it's so um, that's why it's so bad is because we have no clue who these people are. I think, you know, I, I think where I also have trouble with the word invasion is that we've the way our immigration system works is that we've incentivized people to come with children. And, you know, I think it's hard for me to say that a three year old is an invader. Yeah, yeah, I, there's I, also I, an element of organization that's missing here, right? So, like, even in the case of pirates, it's an organized effort. Um, and so, like, there, there seems like there's a, a lack of organization that perhaps, Danielle, you're, you're right, like, some subset of people could, could be characterized as exactly a pirate-like organized effort to, uh, you know, be hostile towards the United States. Um, but... Like even even people who I think could fairly be put in the in the category of, of bad actors, and actually I think a lot of it's we have a smaller problem these days with that was that was the like last year's or, or three years ago's problem was was the families because of our, our uh, the Flores settlement and everything else. Uh, now like I, I can just say firsthand the migrants getting off the bus buses uh, in in New York they're primarily young men between the ages of eighteen and twenty five that that's who's coming and that's people I think point to that and say, well, this does look more like an invasion than, as you say, families with children in tow, right? Yeah, Inez, I might just underscore that and, and suggest that an originalist reading might uh, require a jeopardy of sovereignty, right? In a lot of these early texts, uh, including most of the founders underscored that it has to be a threat to the United States' sovereignty. Hmm. Uh, organized pirates who want to disrupt economics, foreign militaries, those sorts of things, they're attacking the sovereignty uh, of the United States. And while these migrants might be of a certain age, some of them might be bad actors, is there sufficient organization and uh, adversariness to suggest that they're jeopardizing sovereignty? 
even organized crime groups who are seeking to uh, traffic drugs into the United States, harm migrants, profit off this situation, all of those things. They might be bad actors, but I don't think they necessarily want to jeopardize the sovereignty of the United States such that they would fall under the invasion clause. We can go back and forth about their motives, but I think that is a crucial part. I, I do think politically the use of the word invasion is interesting. And I think it's something that in a way benefits both the far left and the right. Um, and that is, you know, when when Governor Abbott says it's an invasion, um, it benefits, I would say, you know, the conservatives, the right, in the sense that um, he's, he's grasping on to a constitutional hook um, to justify what he, you know, what they're doing in Texas. Um, and so it maybe bolsters his legal case, potentially. Um, but it also creates, you know, an image of these people are invading our country, right? Which is sort of the very far right view of, of illegal immigration. The left loves that because they love to be able to say these conservatives just hate brown people from Latin America and they regard them as invaders and occupiers and blah, 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 blah. And so in the final analysis, I think it's actually just not really helpful um, way to look at it. And what I would argue is why does it even matter if it's an invasion, right? Why does the compact clause apply at all? Like the compact clause refers to states uh, committing, you know, going to war. Like Texas isn't engaging in war. They're putting up some wire. So why do we need to say that this is necessary because it's a war against invaders? Like, they're not even doing that. They're just putting up wire. Like, I'm, I'm laughing because I have like a, I guess I have a opposite. I just agree completely with what you characterize the far right view as, as a matter of colloquial speech. I think this is an invasion. Um, leaving aside for the moment, you know, what the original meaning of the word invasion in the Constitution is. And there, I think I do agree with Jill, um, with Danielle about, you know, uh, th there is some, some element of organization that's necessary. I like I like the jeopardy of sovereignty. Like that rings kind of um, fundamentally true to me. Right? That's that there is some essential element of that in, in technically what I would call an invasion. But I and guess it's a matter of rhetoric. I mean. I think it just it's underscores not, the severity of, of the problem. Uh, I guess, but it. if it's not legally quite right, which is the point that I think the three of you are making, um, then why use it at all? Like it, it's just political rhetoric that I think then the left is able to uh, kind of use against Texas and other border states when in fact, what is Texas really doing? Are they repelling an invasion? Are they are they are they initiating an act of war? Or are they just securing their borders so that people who don't, uh, you know, aren't actually citizens can't illegally come in? Like, I just think. I mean, I think that the proof is in the pudding in the sense that they they're not actually repelling an invasion because that would involve like if there was an actual invasion of an organized army, we would expect them to, to be shooting. Correct. Um, so in that pragmatic sense, I think not. But I, I, I guess I have the totally opposite instinct politically because 
actually, I think one of the most successful political gambits in, in this issue has been sending migrants to cities like mine, uh, to big blue cities. I think people now, I think even people in blue areas now understand why someone would call it an invasion. Um, anyway, so that's like sort of here, here nor there. This is we have differing political uh, sort of uh, utility of, of, of the word invasion. But I think yeah. we are sort of in legal agreement. Know that this is this is probably an argument that's unlikely to prevail. Ultimately. Well, I think we're all in policy agreement, right? That that, you know, the border yeah. is not secure. The border needs to be secured. The federal government isn't doing its job. Right. We all we all agree on that. And frankly, I don't know. I think we all agree. I certainly agree that that Texas should be able to protect its borders if the federal government isn't going to. So, then, so let's move then. Go ahead. I'm curious how this strikes you. To me, the word invasion sort of takes the primary actor away from the U.S. government and puts it on a third party. I, I write in my blog, I say it's not an invasion if the executive has its arms wide open because migrants suggest that um, there are two groups working synonymously, right? One is letting them in and the other is entering. But invasion suggests that we are doing all that we can. And despite that, they still have managed to enter the country when that's not what's really happening at all. It's creating the illusion of governmental action, specifically executive action, when there really isn't any. I don't right. know how you invade someone who's opening the door for you. I, I, I think that's <laughs> right. a good point. Um, so let's I, I do want to move because we I think we're running out of out of time to fully discuss the other issues. I do want to to move to the second argument that Greg Abbott makes in this letter, which I think is actually one that has a lot more chance to prevail uh, legally. and And that is essentially he's you know he's citing Scalia's dissent in Arizona against the United States in 2012. You have um, Arizona if the word SB 1070 means anything yes. to anyone. Yeah. Um, this was Arizona coming in and saying that their police officers, state um, state officers, were going to start checking uh, immigration status of people they stopped in the course of their work, right? Um, and that they were going to arrest them under state law. So basically, Arizona duplicated this the the congressional um, oh, yes. law yeah. on the state level. Said we have a separate law. It it matches with what the feds say, uh, but we have a separate law. It's a separate now. It's a state crime um, to be in the state of Arizona illegally in this way, and we're going to prosecute it as a state crime. That's my understanding. I'm still trying to remember what, but. Um, so there was, uh, this is the part I do remember, is the legal reasoning where you have Kagan who had to recuse herself uh, because she had been involved earlier. Um, and so you have the potential for this 4-4 split at, on the court, right, um, over this issue of whether Arizona is able to essentially duplicate federal law. Um, and John Roberts switches over to make it 5-3. Um, and the reasoning of the majority in that case is... Uh, that the plenary power of the federal government over immigration um, sort of it, it fills all corners of the space, right? Uh, that that the states cannot legislate at all with regard to immigration, and so even though this is sort of a duplication of what the federal law actually says, that even federal enforcement priorities have to take precedence and and boot out essentially any of the state involvement. Um, 
so then there's these two dissents in this case. Um, I think Alito also had one, but two that I, I are relevant, I think, for this. Um, one is Thomas saying, basically, duplication is not, there's no challenge to actual federal law here. There's only a challenge to federal enforcement priorities. And if the state wants to come in and uh, enforce its own law um, in accordance that it has no contradiction with the federal law, there's no actual conflict here. And then Scalia says, yes, I agree with you on that, Thomas, but also I think the state, and so he advances this, this theory that um, Abbott cites in, in his letter, which is the concurrent state sovereignty theory, that if, if state sovereignty means anything at all today, then it means the ability, and this is where it folds back into invasion, to repel unwanted um, people, uh, so like obviously not other Americans from the state, but that unwanted to repel unwanted foreigners is a, is such a fundamental aspect of sovereignty that the states actually still retain that element of sovereignty even after the Fourteenth Amendment and the Civil War. Um, so those were kind of that's the background. So now yeah, we can... the federal immigration law wins is basically how yeah. I understand the case. Um, uh, because as a practitioner, I'm in the day to day. How does the system actually work? Um, so I, I think how this this situation interacts with that case. Um, can be kind of, you can kind of look at it with a practical example. So I'm, I'm an illegal alien. I come across, I, I enter into Texas. Have we now, if, if Texas is able to pass its own immigration enforcement scheme, whatever that may be, um, does that then prevent ICE from picking me up? Does that mean now I just have a race to get to New York where they don't have their own enforcement scheme, does that mean that, um, I think that's why this, the federal supremacy of immigration law is kind of important um, because, because we don't have state, hard state borders. So for instance, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I live on the Massachusetts border. I live in New Hampshire. Um, the rules in Massachusetts were very intense. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I technically was violating the law by going to the grocery store where the grocery store is in New Hampshire, but the parking lot is in Massachusetts. And so I think that's where this tension kind of comes into place, where from a practical standpoint, if you have 50 different uh, immigration enforcement mechanisms, it's going to be absolute chaos. Um, what needs to happen is for Congress to do its job and to reform our asylum system, to reform how do we process people at the border, and to give the funding so that people aren't released into the United States. So to get rid of the Flores de Declaration, to have the facilities to detain people so that people can, their claims can be processed, and if they don't qualify, they can be removed. Because right now, the incentives are, if you can get here and you can get in, that's the hard part. And if you maybe show up to court, maybe you do have a legitimate asylum claim. You probably don't. Most of these folks don't. They're just fleeing economic poverty and general unrest, which does not qualify for asylum. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it, it, I get the impulse. <laughs> I get Texas's impulse. But it just, I, I don't see how it works from a practical perspective. I think it would create chaos. I mean, I, I certainly agree with these. Sorry, go ahead, Inez. I, so um, I think the, the thing that Scalia was pointing to, and Thomas did it as well, and um, Jill very kindly 
uh, dropped it in the chat for us, right? So, um, and I'm going to read a bit of, of Scalia's dissent in Arizona, which is the majority's decision deprives Arizona and any other state from furthering its sovereign right and power to exclude people who have no right to be in the state. Moreover, the mere existence of federal action in the immigration field does not mean that a state is powerless to also act in that field. The Arizona laws being challenged do not extend, alter, or revise federal immigration restrictions, but merely enforce current federal restrictions more effectively. So I want to bring an additional element into this discussion, which is we have a court now that looks, let's say, uh, with more skepticism towards... Um, <laughs> sorry, uh, it's a summary, <laughs> not not actual. Part. Okay, sorry, Jill. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to. Um, but it's so it's so well written. It sounds like Scalia. Yeah, kudos. exactly. There you go. Kudos to you, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to bring in this additional element. We have a court that now looks skeptically, um, let's say, or more with more skepticism than courts in the past have looked at uh, to essentially administrative action that bridges into uh, the legislative function, right? We have this administrative state, uh, we have this executive branch that is operating in many ways as a, as a, a sort of illegitimate legislature. And this court is, we saw in, in cases like in the West Virginia case, the EPA, we've seen this court chip away at Chevron deference. We've seen this generally skeptical posture towards what are essentially extra legal actions by executive agencies. Here, I think, just like in the Arizona case, um, we have no actual conflict, right? Because I think, Danielle, you're speaking to, okay, well, it, it would be totally crazy if we had 50 different enforcements of immigration law, right? Um, but here- Do you think New York has a problem now? I mean, uh, blue America will will be invaded if you have, um, which actually might be a good thing because it would provide the incentives. I, I don't think Congress that's that. I don't think that's true. At least under the understanding here, right? So, because um, somebody asked me this when I was uh, chatting, I did this uh, space on on Twitter and a bunch of lawyers and you know people um, talking about this, and somebody asked the question I think you're exactly pointing to, which is, can um, then under this kind of structure, if we overturn Arizona? can um, a blue state knock down the wall? Let's say that the, the Trump administration part two builds a wall and, um, you know, Arizona or let's say California, um, California goes in and knocks down the wall um, that the feds have built. I would say that that's actually a totally different case. And that would be yeah. in that would be a direct contradiction to federal law, assuming right. that Trump right. actually got the funding in Congress for the wall. Right. Um, right, so here, right here, right here, the state is priorities versus state law. Yeah, I mean, here the state is is enforcing, like you said, the laws that are already on the books. It's not a situation where, for example, Massachusetts is saying we're going to let in all people from country X, and and you know irrespective of what the federal government says. And Texas is saying, yeah, no, we're going to let in all people from country Y, but not country X. And they're right. And they all have these completely different policies. No, the policy of who can come in and, and how they can come in is set by the federal government. Nobody disagrees that the federal government has the supremacy to do that. I think the question is, and what, what Scalia raised in his, dissent slash concurrence in, in Arizona was wh absolutely why can't the states 
take action to enforce federal policy. You kind of have that situation right now in a completely different context in the Title IX context, because you have Title IX, which is a federal law that prohibits discrimination in education, including sports. And the federal government is essentially, you know, allowing biological males to compete on women's sports teams because of the way they misinterpret Title IX. You have all these states passing laws that say, um, you know, women's sports are for women. And then the ACLU goes and challenges them in court. And, you know, in a recent federal district court opinion in West Virginia, the, the, the judge, a Clinton appointee, I believe, said the state absolutely has a right to do this because the state is just enforcing Title IX. When a state says women's sports are for women, we don't want women to lose opportunities slash be discriminated against in sport. That is just enforcing the Title IX's mandate. And I, I see what Texas is doing here as exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly, I'd, but, you know. I'd agree with Jennifer. I feel like it's important to underscore that this isn't happening because there are no laws on the books, right? It's not as though Joe Biden or the Biden administration has nothing to enforce. There are laws there, and, and he took an oath to faithfully execute them, but they're not being executed. There's no enforcement. So there's no need to create something else out of whole cloth uh, if they were being enforced, um, which they're not, which resorts then to Texas essentially doing what is already codified at a federal level, just not being enforced. Yeah, but so then a practical extension of that is so does Texas then indefinitely detain these people? I think so. Then Texas uh, passes a concurrent law, so it would be under. They can send them to jail under a state law that does not. So, like, just like if you're, I, I, and and maybe I'm, I'm getting beyond my depth here, but like if if you're like, let's say you're selling um, pot in a state where it's still illegal, right? There's a federal charge that goes along. And now we can discuss whether the, the federal government should be involved at all in in drug law, right? Or whether that's purely a police power matter. I tend to think it's a state. But but for the, the the purposes of argument, we currently have a regime where um, marijuana is, is an illegal substance according to to federal law. Let's say the state also has a law on the books, as as until recently almost all of them did, saying, you know, um, selling pot is a state crime. My understanding is and and is that they have created a state crime. For which they allow the judge basically an out instead of because the, they probably don't want to incarcerate all these people. That's really expensive. Um, they allow the judge essentially as a mitigation to say, well, if you leave, if you leave the country, like, well, we won't put you in jail. So they so are trying to create these these so, concurrent so, laws. So how does that work with someone with a pending asylum claim? Is that Texas judge now denying them due That's process? That's a really good question. Law? Yeah, Danielle, I was going to ask you because to my knowledge, this is circumvented and, and almost rendered obsolete by the fact that the overwhelming majority, the second that they step foot in the United States, say, yeah. I have a credible fear of returning to my home country. Well, once you're in the asylum bucket, you're no longer illegal. There is no crime because you're waiting to seek asylum. Right. So you're sort of taken out of the criminal arena and put into this entirely new bucket 
little do we realize it's made up of practically everyone now because they're told to claim asylum the second mm. they get here. So right. those laws wouldn't even address the core problem because they're all sort of waiting in purgatory in the asylum system. Is that right, Danielle? Or yes. So that's I mean, because under the law, once you are able to convince a border patrol officer that you have a credible fear, you are in the asylum system under the law you are entitled to a hearing before an immigration judge. And you're no longer illegally. You're no longer well, an illegal so that, immigrant, so, right? So, so what your status is in the United States, that's a very technical, like what your actual status is, is in the United States is kind of a very, you're kind of in a quasi-status because you're technically not in status. And the reason why I say that is because if you were, um, if you were in status, you could be entitled to other immigration relief. So like a work visa or some other thing. But so they're kind of in this like quasi holding status of having pending a pending asylum case. And that and that's again, and that's, a, again, a totally federal process. There is no way for the state to enforce that. There is no way for the state to be involved in that. Um, yeah. I, and I think that's why these attempts at the states to um, detain people like really backfires. I mean, are we going to have the state of Texas detain people while it takes seven years for someone's asylum claim to make it through the asylum system? I mean, that's cuckoo. Um, or, you know, I mean, frankly, what I think needs to happen is that Congress, again, needs to do its job and reform our immigration, reform our asylum system. Um, and also make it possible so that there isn't this massive catch and release. So that, you know, I mean, you hear the joke about Harvard, right? The hardest part about Harvard is getting in. The hardest part about the United States for low kind of low skill, kind of these economic migrants is getting into the United States. Because once you get into the United States, unless you get arrested or whatever, you can basically lay low, disappear, and you are, even though you are in the very bottom and dregs of our society in terms of the lowest kind of income potential, you're still earning orders of magnitude more than what you would earn in your home country. Can I, so can I, think, I ask you a question, Danielle? What yeah. happens if somebody, so in that limbo status, they've claimed asylum, yeah. um, they have a court date five years from now, and they're released into the, yeah. into the country. Um, obviously, it doesn't it doesn't prevent them from committing other crimes, right? If they commit another crime, a state crime, say like the, the five guys who beat right. up the cop in New York, then they're tried under the state law um, Correct. and, and either deported or um, I guess that would be a federal action or they're put into state, state so, prison, so right? Yeah. So like, why can't the state then say there is a, a state, like being in the state of Texas illegally, without a right to be here is like a state crime in the order of, you know, running someone over with your car. Then, that, but I think you're right there. Then there really is a conflict with like the, the asylum law. Yeah. The federal one. Yeah. No, I mean, it conflicts with, with the international treaties that kind of serve as some of the basis of our asylum law. Um, I mean, that, that's the problem is that once you get here, you can disappear basically. Now, what will happen typically when someone is arrested for a violent felony or something like that, they're arrested, they go through the court process, and then what happens, and then they're sentenced, they serve their sentence, and then what happens at the end 
is that ICE is notified and ICE will come get them. Because the idea is not that like you, let's say you're some high, high up member of a Mexican drug cartel, you murder someone and then you say, you know, hey, just send me back to Mexico. That doesn't happen. They then the, the person serves their life sentence. They may never go back to Mexico, but because so many criminals would choose over jail, just, all right, I'll just leave. Bye. Um, you know, and go live in my country where I won't be incarcerated. So I think that's, that's the real tension here. Uh, and it's, and it, and it's um, emblematic of, of immigration is really, really complicated, really, really complicated. Um, so let me, let me ask this, then let's return to the question of the razor wire, because I, I think I'm going to have to think through it myself. I think, you know, you're right. You've brought up a real conflict. If somebody says they have, or if somebody is granted asylum, whatever pre-status um, pending their, their court date by the federal government, then you really do kind of have a conflict between the state. If the state wants to um, make it a, a state crime to be well, and also, in that state, I guess, I guess you can leave the state. <laughs> Can I just give you one other example? Um, so there's something called temporary protected status, TPS, which is determined by the federal government. And it's for things where there's like a humanitarian disaster. So, so for instance, Haitians, after the 2010 earthquake, if you were here in the United States, even if you were here illegally, you could get something called TPS, which gives you temporary protected status. It gets you a work permit. They're technically, they're not in status, but they have a status. What So could Texas detain those people then too, even though the federal government is saying, no, we're giving you temporary protected status and you're here, but you're still technically illegal. Like if you murder someone, they're going to deport you. So then, then the question is, you really do rely on whether, I guess then the, the real legal question here has to be, not just the half that both Thomas and Scalia agreed on, that if you duplicate federal law, um, that the state has some power to enforce it, to go against essentially the enforcement priorities of the federal government, as long as they're not contravening the law. Mm-hmm. Um, then you, but you, you have this second, the necessity of, of, I guess, the second piece of the Scalia dissent, which is this concurrent sovereignty and the right to exclude. Um, and I, I, I wonder if the, one of the solutions that we might see happen is, Essentially, they can't um, take them out of the asylum uh, status or pre-status that you're talking about, uh, but they can say leave the state, um, and it just ends up directing yeah. like all the red states pass this, these kinds of laws, and and all the blue states uh, don't, and so it just ends up directing all of the asylum cases to blue states. Um, I mean that that'll be a really interesting that'd be really interesting politically. Yeah. And I'd be curious to know what percentage of all immigration claims are asylum because there are millions. I mean, I think, Danielle, correct me if I'm wrong, the wait list is like eight or 10 years or something unbelievable. I mean, no. you will never have a hearing at, at this rate. So I'm curious, you know, what percentage of all claims is this asylum bucket with this strange nebulous status? So the, the immigration courts currently have a backlog of 3.3 million cases. And that's just immigration courts. So those are people who are in removal proceedings. You can also apply for asylum affirmatively. So you can enter the United States via a visa. And so you come on a tourist visa or a student visa, 
I just did a consultation for some Chinese Catholics yesterday on applying for asylum in the United States because they will be disappeared if they return. Um, and that's an affirmative case. And that you file with USCIS directly. I believe um, the last time I checked, the wait for an interview for USCIS is about seven to 10 years. And they're doing right now last in first out. So if you, so like I have a pro bono case I filed on behalf of a woman feeling uh, uh, a terrible story, um, fleeing political uh, sexual violence in Haiti. Um, and she, we filed seven years ago. I have no idea when her interview will be. So that, that, that does uh, really highlight the, the brokenness of, of the asylum system, but I guess I'm with Jill. What what percentage of of people at this point on the border are claiming asylum? Probably pretty high. I know people. They all are. Um, and anyway, so like that that yeah, I I, I think that that I I'm learning something here. Um, I, I really think that there probably is a conflict to some degree then between the actual asylum laws, um, and, and the potential state crime of, of but. Perhaps not if the crime is is not being in in the country illegally, but being in the state of Texas illegally. Um, potentially, there isn't then a conflict between uh, federal and state law. Anyway, this is this is this is very interesting. Um, I know I've learned a lot. I hope <laughs> uh, from from this discussion. Um, one one final question to sort of wrap it up and and where you see this going. So, we now have the posture of this case. Um, the injunction is is uh, dissolved, right? So uh, that the feds can cut the razor wire, Texas can keep putting it up. Um, so where where do you see this going? This is now going to be we're going to argue out all the things that we've been talking about, right? In in the Fifth Circuit, is that is that right? The next step here. Um, and then what do you expect from those arguments in the Fifth Circuit, and then potentially? So we, we have a whole bucket of them, right? We have the invasion clause of of in the constitution, right? Um, we have the concurrent state sovereignty idea of Scalia. We have the, with the right to exclude, we have the potential uh, sort of non-conflict between state and federal law, which may or may not be uh, complicated by asylum law. And then on top of that, we have the, um, the, the fact that this is on private property as well. So uh, we, we have like this additional wrinkle that these are property owners who, who permitted the state of Texas to put up the wire, uh, but did not do not want the federal government to cut it. Right. So there's there's I, I tend to think that's probably going to be pushed aside. But Jill, you pointed out, you know, uh, th that this provides a narrow ground for um, an immunities ground for this whole whole case to basically be dismissed. So what I know predictions are just opportunities to make fools of yourselves in, the, in these things. But uh, if you were to permit us uh, to make fools of you, what where do you see some of these issues going in the Fifth Circuit and then in, in the Supreme Court? Yeah, I, I mean, I have a rather anticlimactic prediction, I think, which is that um, you know, I don't think the invasion question, I don't think we'll get an answer. A lot of courts have heard that and they've deemed it what's called a non-justiciable political question, which basically says, you know, this is not our job as the courts. We're going to let the political branches handle this. At least that's how it's been handled in the past. Who knows? Maybe with this court, we'll see something different and and they'll answer it. But uh, up till now, that they haven't agreed to. So I don't I don't see why why they would uh, at this point. So that's my prediction for the invasion question. And then 
As far as the private property one, I would not be surprised if they held that it was blocked by uh, governmental immunity and and they kicked it as well. Who knows, based on the litigiousness of uh, Governor Abbott's administration and and our current um, Solicitor General, who knows, maybe there will be another sort of iteration of this to come up at the court before this is over. But uh, yeah, because it's right. This case, one thing to keep in mind is that the the case was brought by Texas. The case was brought. Texas is suing the federal government to get them to stop doing something. But it very well uh, could take a different iteration where the the federal government is going to court to try to stop Texas from acting. So in that case, the legal issues would be slightly different, right? And and it may be that that the courts say Texas doesn't have the right to block the feds from like we're not going to deal with this, but. It, if it were if it came at it from a different posture, they may decide something different. I think um, federal courts hate dealing with immigration. They hate it. Um, so I think they're going to try to bounce this on as limited a kind of uh, posture as possible. So I think they're going to, um, I think they'll bounce it on sovereign immunity. I think they'll say, sorry, Texas, sovereign immunity. This is, um, that, that's what I think is going to happen. I do think the, um, I do think the case of the federal government suing Texas for this behavior, I think is more interesting. Um, because I think it, it then gets into like private, more private property rights of the private landowners. But then also there's this special magical hundred mile from the border zone and then the government has, I believe, can enter any property, any land that's within 25 miles of the border, even if it's private land, they can just enter it. They can't go into dwellings. So, you know, how do they deal with the argument that the razor wire is or other barriers are impeding that 25 miles of access? So, I mean, I think the Supreme Court is just not going to want to because this is ultimately going to get to the Supreme Court. Right. I think they are going to not want to deal with it and and send it out on on um on sovereign immunity issues that's my guess and i'm probably yeah. wrong well we'll we'll have both of you back uh, if and when any of these things actually uh come to a decision on the merits and and uh we'll either congratulate you or mock you for your, <laughs> for no, your we'll never mock. i'm never. just kidding uh, <laughs> uh, Jill Jacobson, Danielle Webb, um, thank you so much for, for joining us today at the bar to discuss everything from invasion uh, to asylum here. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. Um, so at the bar, which one of us is going to close it out, Jennifer? Yeah, you close it, yes. <laughs> Um, at the Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. Uh, it's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. And you can also listen to this if you are doing so now as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get those podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers.